you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do give you thanks again for your word and for gathering us around it this morning. Lord, it is a holiday weekend, and we do confess that we come in here with all kinds of thoughts, worries, and distractions. Uh, but Lord, you have gathered us to see you, to worship you, and to be transformed by you. And I pray that you would do it as we give attention to your word. Holy Spirit, we need you to act on us, and so we plead with you to open our eyes, to see the truth, to see our Savior, Jesus, who is so good and so great. We pray in his name. Amen. So, this portion of scripture that's about scripture comes within a letter, a very old letter, that was written by a real person named Paul to uh, his friend and mentee, whose name was Timothy. Paul was a pastor who was old. He was getting ready to die. And Timothy was uh, his young protege and someone he had trained and mentored for many years. And Paul and Timothy were separated, so Paul wrote this letter and sent it to Timothy. And within the letter, he wrote about Scripture. And so, as we think through this short passage, I, I want us to see three things that this passage says about Scripture. I'm sure you can see a lot more than three things, but I'm a Presbyterian minister. And so I have three things for you. The first thing that I want us to see is the necessity of Scripture. Why do we need it? The second thing that I want us to see is the trustworthiness of Scripture. Why should we believe it? And the third thing that I want us to see is the purpose of Scripture. What's the point? All right, so those are three things I want us to see. First is the necessity of Scripture. And what the passage tells us is that Scripture is necessary because evil is real. You see this in the passage in verses 12 and 13. Let me go back to that. Let me read that for you. Paul wrote, Indeed, all who live, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be to be persecuted means to be treated badly, to be sought out and acted upon and against because of your relationship with Jesus. And what this passage says, what Paul wrote, was a promise. It was a prophecy and a promise that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will experience 
Persecution will come for you if you follow Jesus. There are evil people, powers, institutions, and the evil one, which we just prayed about in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, who are seeking to destroy Evil is real. The world is not morally or spiritually neutral. Evil exists in it. And it will come against you. One of the primary ways that evil comes for God's people is through deception. That's what we read in verse 13. That evil people and imposters will go on from bad words deceiving being deceived. This was the primary tactic of the father of lies, Satan. At the very beginning of the scripture of Genesis 3, if you've ever read that account, Adam and the first human beings were living in perfect communion with God, and Satan, in the form of a serpent, entered into the world before sin existed, and he deceived the man and the woman. And ever since then, Satan and those under his influence have been deceiving, being deceived, trying to lead God's people astray. We need the scripture because evil is real, and therefore we need the scripture to tell us the truth. My family got chickens. Two years ago, two and a half, right before the pandemic. A lot of people got chickens during the pandemic, but I just wanted to be on the record that we were cool enough to get chickens before the pandemic, February of 2020. Yeah, there you go. Two and a half years ago. It was a great time. Uh, I've never had any kind of farm or animals before, and it has been a wild and glorious drive. So much fun. I highly recommend it. If you're thinking about it, come grab me afterwards, and I will do my best to convince you of the gospel of chicken ownership. But one thing that I did not know or understand about chicken keeping was the role of the chicken coop. When we got chickens, I thought, oh man, we gotta get a coop. And the reason that I thought we gotta get a coop is because I've seen the chicken coop in the children's books that I've read about barnyards for my whole life. And my thinking was we needed a chicken coop because the chickens were going to want somewhere to go at night to huddle up and feel safe and secure inside their home. So we got the baby chickens, and they lived in a cardboard box in our living room for a couple of weeks. But we got a coop so that when they got old enough, we could let them put them out and they could go to their home. Well, here's what we found is that when we sent the chickens out into the yard, they didn't care at all about the chicken coop. They didn't know it existed. They didn't know its purpose. They completely ignored it. As a matter of fact, the chickens, when it started to get dark, and they were hanging out in their yard, would just fall asleep wherever they were. <laughs> they would fall asleep on the railing of the deck, or on the back of one of the chairs out by the fire pit, or just sitting on the ground. They would just fall asleep. And see, what we found is after doing some reading about the purposes of chicken coop, 
was that the chicken coop doesn't provide some emotional need that the chicken has. They don't need to feel safe. We need to have a coop for the chickens because bobcats live in our neighborhood and raccoons and foxes. And there was even rumors of a baby bear. And these predators would love nothing more than to prowl around at night, wander into our yard, and find this pea-brained, defenseless lump of protein <laughs> just sitting on the ground. And so we had to teach our oldest son, Simon, to get a stick and go out and chase the chickens from where they had fallen asleep into the coop to lock them securely away from the predators. <laughs> you need a chicken coop because there are lots of animals that want to eat your chickens. We need God's word to tell us the truth about reality because evil People, powers, and institutions are out there trying to deceive you. Every movie and TV show you watch, it seems, is trying to convince you of a distorted view of gender and sexuality. Every advertisement you scrolling on your phone or a plaster on billboards, every advertisement you encounter is telling you lies about where to find joy and satisfaction in the world. Every news source that we read or watch or listen to lies to us about economics and how we can be financially secure and prosperous in this world. We encounter lies all the time about what is real and what is true. And the scripture tells us the truth. We need to know what's true. So we go to the scriptures. But if there's so many lies out there, if we're being uh, bombarded with untrustworthy information all the time, what gives us any idea that the scripture is any different? How do we know that we can trust what we find when we open the Bible? Well, there are lots of ways to answer that question. But I'm just going to tell you the one thing that this passage What this passage tells us, Scripture speaking about Scripture, is that the Bible is trustworthy. This is point two. The Bible is trustworthy, very simply, because it comes from God. This is what it says in verses 16 and 17. It's a famous passage if you've been around church for a while. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable. All scriptures read out by God. 
some older translations translate this, that all scripture is inspired by God. But I don't like that translation so much. Because I think when we read all scripture is inspired by God, it kind of sounds like maybe the people who wrote the Bible were thinking about God, maybe sitting out by a beautiful mountain. And they were reflecting on God's goodness and they were feeling inspired. And so they started to write down things to tell people about God. But according to Scripture, that is not what happened. According to Scripture, there were human beings who were vectors for God's own words. It's, when Paul wrote this, he, said, he didn't say that people were inspired to write about God. He took two words. He invented a word to describe what was happening. He took the word God and the word breathe. And he stuck those words together. And it had never been done in Greek, as far as scholars have been able to find. For the first time ever, somebody took God and Greek and stuck them together. And he said that when the scriptures were produced, God breathed them out. The words that we have, the words that we can hear when we open the scripture, come from the very mouth. This is God's word. Elsewhere in Scripture, that idea is repeated. Another author of the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, said in 2 Peter 1, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not a work of man. Hero Onoda was a Japanese Imperial soldier during World War II. And in 
The war is over. The Japanese army has surrendered. Turn yourselves in to the Philippine authorities, and you will be sent home. And Hiro Onoda and his fellow soldiers in the jungle read this and crumpled it up and threw it away and said, never. They couldn't believe it. And they kept fighting. And months went by, and years went by. And eventually, they weren't fighting Americans anymore. The Americans kind of disappeared. But the Philippine Army was still there, and they were fighting the Philippine Army. One by one, Hiro Onoda's friends were killed off in these guerrilla fights until it was just them. Until 1974. 30 years after he had been stationed on Luang Island, when he was still fighting World War II, another Japanese man, young man, a college student, named Norio Suzuki, went on a quest from Japan. Find the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, or Hero Onoda. Because he was known back home as this great lost soldier. And Norio Suzuki did not find Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, but he did make it to move on island and he found Hero Onoda calling out to him in the jungle in Japanese. And the two men met in the jungle in Hero Onoda's team. And of course, during a season passed, why don't you surrender? Why don't we come out? And Hiro Kanoda said, that is very simple. My commanding officer ordered me to defend the island and never surrender and to not take my life. And unless my commanding officer orders me to surrender, I will not. Noria Suzuki was like, And he went back to Japan. And he found Hiro Onoda's commanding officer, who was still alive. And that commanding officer took the journey to Lubong Island and went back into the jungle and found Hiro Onoda's camp. And he ordered them to surrender. And Hiro Onoda, in 1974, became the last Japanese imperial soldier to lay down his arms, completely ending World War II. I just think that story is awesome. But what I want us to think about with Hiro Onoda is that he would not and he could not believe anything or anyone other than the one who had a foreign to tell him to surrender. When he was in the jungle, he not only got pamphlets from the Japanese uh, army that were dropped out of airplanes, his family had sent letters and photographs 
Sunday 
does not only come from outside with the possums and the raccoons and the foxes, but the danger comes from within the coop as well. The chickens who we love are also evil and they want to kill the other baby chickens. And when we read the scripture and when we see what the scripture says about us, it tells us over and over again in no uncertain terms that not only do we face threats from outside of us, which we do. Evil is real and it's in the world and it comes from outside of us, but there is evil in us That all of us carry with us sin and rebellion against God. And when the Bible tells us about Jesus, where it's taking us is into Jesus, into a relationship with him, which is mystical and amazing, a union with Christ, whereby he takes our sin from us, putting it to death by virtue of his death on the cross. And he gives to us righteousness. So that even though we in our flesh sin against God, we are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ when we stand before God. And Jesus deals with the sin that's inside the coop, inside the family of God, and inside of us. And then an amazing thing happens. As we get to know the scripture, as the scripture takes us to Jesus over and over again, it shows our need for him, and it shows us his provision for us, and we are conformed into his image. The scripture empowers us, shapes us, forms us, and it sends us outside into that dangerous and scary world to be a light world that is perishing. That's what it says at the end of this passage. Verse 17. I'll start with verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and proper for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And is making us more and more like Jesus so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every Good work. The scripture takes us to Jesus. It forms us into the image of Jesus. And it sends us out into a world that hates us to reflect Jesus into the world and to be emissaries of his kingdom. Let me pray and ask him to help us in these ways. Lord, we do give you thanks that you. Loved us and you saved us that by your work and your word that you renew us, transform us, and use us to bring your kingdom to bear in the world. I pray that you give us good hope for this, that we would not be afraid of, uh, of the evil that's in the world, that we would not be uh, weighed down or shrink back from. The difficulty of navigating a world that wants to persecute us, but rather that you would set us free 
Lord, I pray that you would do this for us as individuals and for this church as a light in Greenville. 